This episode of 80 Days is brought to you by HarryBaby.com, the company that makes the funniest Irish-themed t-shirts. Harry Baby shipped to 71 countries last year, and to celebrate its 10th anniversary in 2017, Harry Baby aims to deliver to all 196 countries in the world by St. Patrick's Day 2018. You can help by ordering now from HarryBaby.com and use the promo code 80DAYS, that's 80DAYS, to get 10% off. I am willing to wager 20000 I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the Gambia, the smallest country on the African mainland. Cutting a small sliver out of the western coastline of Senegal, the Gambia is one of just a handful of nations on earth to share a border with just one country. The entirety of the country surrounds its namesake, the Gambia River, with the border running parallel to both banks of the river inland for about 250 kilometers. The Gambia's population of around 2 million is largely impoverished, and its GDP is ranked at 167th out of 188 countries around the world. Like much of West Africa, its history has been impacted heavily by the slave trade. Having gained its independence in 1965 from the British Empire, the Gambia has come to rely on its growing reputation as a tourist destination and recently made the headlines following a political power struggle between two presidential candidates. Mark, do you want to kick us off with some early history of the Gambia? It is somewhat disputed, these accounts. The earliest we have is maybe Hanno the Navigator, which is the 6th to 5th century BC. He was a Carthaginian explorer, uh, went through the Straits of uh, Gibraltar, through Cadiz, and going from, from Carthage, at the time, Carthage was a big power, and they sent this guy uh, down the west coast of Africa. And part of his mission was to found new cities, to found colonies, basically. The accounts of his, his journey include a mention of something called Bambotus, or Crocodile River. Great name. This is a bit debated because people are unsure as to how many crocodiles really could have been there around that time. And it may have been, you know, the Senegal River. It might have been a different river. Also, some debate about whether there might have been uh, mangroves and so on uh, around the, the mouth of the river. So, you know, maybe they sailed right past it and didn't see it. But if you look at it on a map, it's a pretty huge river mouth. And these guys were colonizers. So to think that they passed it twice and didn't have a look up this massive river, it seems unrealistic i would say we, we we should just point that out the gambia is a huge river oh yeah uh, and it's, it's navigable river, yeah about 250 kilo- like pretty much the whole length of the country is the navigable bit of the gambia river so you can bring reasonably large ships up this really wide river and that, that's what is attractive about it both the senegal river a few hundred kilometers north and the gambia river are these really attractive ways of getting to the interior of Africa for trade. Between these two rivers, the land is known as Senegambia. Like as a mm-hmm. region, that's kind of generally what it's, it's termed. Because like Gambia is this tiny little bite out of Senegal, which is actually itself quite a large country. And it, it looks really arbitrary on a map, but if you go through the history, it kind of makes sense that it's, it's separate. Yeah. 
They call it the smiling coast of Africa. Nice. So talking about ancient uh, Gambia, there's there's no way we won't talk about the stone circles of Senegambia. They are a UNESCO heritage site. Um, some of them are in uh, Senegal. Some of them are in, in Gambia. Two, two of the sites are in, in Gambia. Altogether, they comprise about a thousand monuments oh, wow. along about 350 kilometers of the River Gambia. There's four groupings, uh, two of them in Senegal. They're Sine Nyene and Wanar. And then in Gambia, you have Wasu and Kerbach. Altogether, 93 stone circles and then numerous uh, burial mounds, similarly uh, ancient kind of burial site uh, features. And are these kind of standing stones? or Yeah, huge columnar standing stones, uh, circular about, I think, uh, 8 to 14 stones per circle in general. They look kind of like a mini Stonehenge sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, mini African say. Stonehenges. Yeah. Maybe a bit tidier, I would say, than Stonehenge. Without and, the top stones. Uh, yes, but... Yes. They're, they're, they're not dolmen-like. They're just but, upright stones. But, but what they do is they, they add little pebbles to the tops of them. So mm. the, if you look at photos of them, you see that it's, you know, it's a column and then a little lumpy stony bit on top. Um, I think that's something that that uh, local people do, so sort of commemorate the dead. And it may not necessarily be a specific dead person that they obviously know. These are ancient standing stones, but I think just as a general tribute to their to their forefathers and ancestors. And do we know how old, Mark? Yes. So they they are about one thousand to fifteen hundred years old. Okay. The stones themselves are quarried out from from local sites, and this is just an interesting feature to mention: quarried out using iron implements and. This is significant because they never they never had a Bronze Age in in Gambia and the whole oh. area. They, they just skipped the Bronze Age. They went from stone to iron and no bronze. Moving on a little bit, uh, you start to see the influence of Islam and Trans-Saharan traders going up maybe uh, 800, 900 AD, closer towards 1000 AD. These people were seen, uh, I think, pretty favorably. They were you know, enormously wealthy. They were literate, which was a big deal at the time because uh, the, the people in, in Senegambia were, were supposedly not, uh, didn't have any writing of their own. This is one of the reasons also that we don't have, you know, other alternative historical records to fall back on. Also thing, you know, events like the, the fires in the Great Library of Alexandra got rid of most of the sort of firsthand accounts of people like Hannah the Navigator and uh, Sepastes and, and these guys. So, yeah, Muslim culture starts to become a part of Gambia from here on. There's accounts of their, you know, their their dress, impressive mosques, the fact that they're you know, they're wealthy traders. These are not the ne'er-do-wells of their culture. These are, you know, the 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 high-end business people. They are they are wealthy and they're well-read and and literate. Uh, and where are they coming from? Uh coming from places like uh, uh Morocco, some, I mean, it, it it's it's coinciding a little bit also with the the spread of Islam, so some of the culture coming I think from from Egypt, I've seen mentioned quite a lot as well. So culture spreading from Egypt westwards, but also the trade is spreading from from there out as well. So it, it's it's coinciding, as I say, with the the spread of Islam. So around this time, you have the foundation of the Mali Empire, which uh, went on to take Gambia w- within to it, uh, founded by Sundiata Keita. He basically fought this huge battle at Karina in twelve thirty five, and after that battle, where he you know pulled in together all these smaller states around him to create Mali, uh, which was the, the great empire in West Africa at the time. He didn't really uh, follow up on that with any more conquests, but his generals did. And it was his generals that moved on and, and conquered uh, West Africa, including uh, including the Gambia. The Mali empire would go on to be famously wealthy, in particular the capital Timbuktu. And it, I mean, this is one of the reasons why 
when the the Europeans later on started exploring West Africa and they start to hear about you know the wealth of Mali and uh, they were obsessed with Timbuktu. They were obsessed with it. it. So a, a little bit. This is, uh, I guess, kind of setting up Gambia for the fervency of exploitation that it experienced. People were very very excited about coming to this place and making money from it. So. Pushing on a little bit, we have um, uh, Ibn Battuta, who is a, a Muslim explorer, the equivalent of uh, like a Marco Polo. I think he actually came 50 years after Marco Polo, but he went to uh, to China, to Asia, but he also went to West Africa. He may, he's one of the guys who may have been in the Gambia at some point, it's very hard to say. Uh, and then when the, the Mali Empire fell, it was replaced by the Songhai uh, Empire uh, for the 15th and 16th centuries, and then... Subsequently on, there was the, the Dendi Kingdom, which came after, which seems to have been not really very well organized and mainly sort of about internal feuds and civil wars and so on. So from the Mali Empire, which was a you know well-structured, uh, opulent empire and did really well, things kind of degrade a bit with time. The, the, the successor of the Songhai Empire, not as well run, and then Dendi, less well run again. And But at that point, you're kind of coinciding with pressure coming from, from Europeans a little bit too. And, and the Mali Empire is, that was the, that was a Mandinka-led empire, right? Yeah, that, that, that was basically Mandinka culture and the spread of it into West Africa. And today they're, they're the biggest, I think they're still about half of the population of the Gambia are, are, are from Mandinka ethnic groups. Yeah, and so I think in the, in the general area, I think there's about there's 20 million Mandinka people in total as a, hmm. as a broad culture. There's a lot well, of... We, we came across them in Liberia as well last season. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're not hmm. too far away from Liberia uh, geographically nope. here. It's, it's very, very close. Um, just some, some, to mention some points about Mandinka culture. Um, and firstly, I guess a, a thank you to, to Nilo Leary, um, a buddy of mine who was out in, in the Gambia recently, and he went into some of the museums and sent back some of the uh, material from there. So it's it's uh, it's on his uh, his kindness and generosity on which this the following information is based. Also, if what I'm about to say is wrong, please write to him on Twitter and uh, accuse him of of all manner of chicanery. So two of the things I, I saw from from his photos he took from the museum that were the most interesting. One was uh, Kanye Leng, which is the, the practice of, uh, it's, a, it's not, a, not a great practice, I'm, I'll say that at the outset, but uh, women who are either infertile or suffer stillborn children, mm. um, they're separated from the community, but they have this kind of role of being, I mean, they're kind of, I think, regarded as, as witches or married to demons, but they have this role at ceremonies where they uh, prepare certain kinds of food, but they also very loudly uh, lampoon authority figures and mm-hmm. they eat in this really kind of frenetic, attention-grabbing Did they hear way. something like they eat out of hats for some reason? Well, I think that, that was kind of an example, like that they're right. scrabbling around their food, throwing the food around so much that they'll even like put the food on their head and then eat the food or just throw it on the floor and eat it up off mm. the floor. Just like anything to make the act of eating a bit more, you know, activity-based. These are kind of societies for infertile women because they obviously won't have families to support them. So within the tribal structure, having the these kind of groupings, I think, are helpful to give them uh, the protection a family might give you. Uh, yeah, I, I think they're called CAFO, these associations. Yeah, Canyonline CAFO. But the, the CAFO... I get the feeling are maybe not, you know, centrally organized by the society. I think that's the women doing that for themselves. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Out of necessity and and because the groups are 
across castes and across yeah. religious groups and across ethnic groups is sort of all the infertile women in an area will will join together as a kind of a club. I mean, in one way, you see that part and you're like, that's quite nice. But then you remember why they're having to do that yeah. because they're seen as witches yeah. and terrible. And you're like, oh, God. The other thing I wanted to mention, Ooh. and it is really, really terrifying. I would highly encourage you to look it up is the Kankurang. Well, we're going to we'll put Niall's pictures on, on the show, in the show notes on the website. Okay, sweet. They are a, a type of spirit that fends off other evil spirits. It's like hiring a, a mafia boss to protect you from the other mafia bosses. It is, it is yeah. a, a, your own little bit of evil that you can deploy on external evils. And it really looks evil. There's these traditions all through the Mandinka world, well, and, and to a lot of Africa, of these kind of masks, that mm. you have different masks for different ceremonies and somebody inhabits the mask and then the mask is the, is whatever ceremonial role is required. Masks and machetes. Machetes also. Yeah, the most famous one in um, the Gambia is this one you're referring to, the Fara Kankarango. Think like a huge, burly cousin it. From the Adams family, so like all hair, no features, the the hair, no face, no face, mm-hmm. hunched over, a machete in each hand, which they bind together oh. to make noise, and just, but they also just have a machete in each hand. Like they could be using that to like stir yogurt. It wouldn't matter. They've got a machete in each hand. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the maximum number of machetes per hand that it is feasible to have. They have red bark as the dress and they've, r- they've red dust rubbed into the red bark to make it m- more red. They generally turn up in uh, pairs and it's, it's a mix of, I guess, two different things I saw that they, they turn up at as a, a circumcision events, um, which I guess are a big deal in the community. And also when some tragedy has befallen the community and therefore they need the presence of one of these mad machete wielding monsters to keep away witches or evil spirits yeah exactly he 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 gonna slice them up a treat yep. uh, and I, I read that, that when the fara kankarango is is about in the village people hide particularly women women aren't supposed to look at this particular mask there are other masks that i don't think we're going to go into but but they serve different purposes and some of them have music and songs that go with them mm. this one doesn't yeah, oh, that was that was one thing. Yeah, they played drums when mm. it's there, but no singing. No singing. So, so oh it's, God, it's, it's a terrifying. pretty terrifying prospect. Like, oh, if you, it's tempting to see it as as kind of comical if you see it, an image. Yeah. But I can just imagine encountering one of these guys in real life, and I feel like it'd be really, really scary. I read about a really fascinating incident where I can't remember exactly when it happened, but the Kankarang killed someone. Oh my God. In, in one situation, because I think it was he'd gone off to get a drink. The good p- person was wearing the mask and his sister had seen him take the mask off. And oh therefore she knew who he was, which is forbidden. Mm. And he beat her and she later died. And the British court wanted to the community to bring the guilty party to them. And so they brought the mask and the machetes to the court. Oh, my God. Oh, it's terrifying. And then the story, which I'm sure is heavily mythologized. In the story, a tornado comes into the room and animates the mask and the mask chases away the judge. And it's all of it. You you don't need a tornado to make it like to flesh out the story. It's a scary, disembodied grass machete monster. Yep. 
just while we're on it, we should mention the you talked about circumcision. So, so oh no, like we came across in Liberia, there is this weird oh, no. practice that we don't really want to get into in too much detail because we don't know enough about it. But there's, there's this tradition of a bush school where like young men and women are taken away into the into the woods with people wearing these masks to for maybe a number of months learn how to become how to fulfill their roles within the tribe and there are initiation rituals which for almost all men include circumcision and that's when the this mask comes out but also um female genital mutilation is common among many of the tribal groups in uh, the gambia up to 90 or 95 percent prevalence and there's a lot of efforts now to crack down on it because it's bad. Uh, it's awful. It, it has it has been banned recently. Is that yes? Uh, did I, Barrow banned it. Yeah, the, the new president. Yeah, the new president. It, yeah, um, and there are obviously but... uh, NGOs working on, on on stopping it. But this is a really ingrained practice. Yeah, best as of luck, part lads. of these these traditions, and these kind of almost religious ceremonies persist despite most people being Muslims nowadays. I don't really know how those two ideas fit together. And also, just before we move on, there are other tribal groups other than Mandinka, but oh. they share similar, many similar uh, traditions. Big groups are the the Wolofs, who live in kind of the northwest of the country, largely. There's also the uh, Fulas and the Jolas, Basari and Pachari. Those are some of the the racial groups in in decreasing population size, I think. But it's difficult to find too much about the distinctions. It isn't in. Um, really racist books written by colonial administrators so i i can't really give you too much more hello most of my thoughts are terrifying yeah we didn't mention it up the top but the you know the it is a very very small country oh, as, tiny. as we've already alluded to like uh one i think it's around 1.8 million yep. population currently and yep. obviously would have been a lot less, oh, much smaller um, for most of history you know yeah, uh, and all of these cultural groups cross the border as well into Senegal. There's no real yeah, the yeah. border is is a line on a on a, on a map. Now we have around uh, the 1500s, we have the arrival of the Europeans, not the British just yet. The Portuguese are the first Europeans to encounter the Gambia. I guess a bit of background. In 1453, the Ottoman Empire captured Constantinople, sort of disrupted the flow of white slaves from the Black Sea region and the Balkans. So Mediterranean Europe and this, you know, I guess isn't isn't widely kind of spoken about, but there was European slavery into Mediterranean Europe at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cut off from one of its most traditional sources of slaves and interest turns towards Africa. Wonderful. Uh, which is kind of, yeah, this is... Thanks, Europe. Is nothing compared to the transatlantic slave trade, but is, is kind of like... The, it's where it the starts. Beginnings of the slave trades from, Get, from Africa, sure. Yeah. So in the 1400s, Prince Henry of Portugal instructs his navigators to explore the West African coast to disrupt the Arab and Muslim domination of the trans-Saharan gold trade. So mm. uh, essentially gold was being transported across the Sahara from sub-Saharan Africa. And he, he wanted to take it out by sea. Exactly. He wants to go around the Arab and Muslim trans-Saharan gold trade and you know establish a trade route himself. That's quite clever sea. And, and not inherently yeah. evil. Uh, exactly. So, so 
1455, the Portuguese become the first uh, Europeans to reach the mouth of the Gambia River, as far as we know. And Captains Luis de Cadamosto and Antonio de Usidomare, I think, they reach the river and travel a few kilometers upstream and are kind of repelled by the natives. Reasonable. They head back and then regroup. And the following year, the same group returns to the mouth of the river and this time manages to make it 20 miles upriver and encounter what is now called, or was later called, James Island. Okay, that's an important yeah. site. This is a very key uh, area for the slave trade. Basically, it becomes like an island where slaves are transported to. This island is right in the middle of the river. Yeah, as we mentioned, it's a very, very wide river, especially towards the, the mouth of the river. Mm-hmm. And this is like a you know decent-sized island right in the middle of the, you know, between the two banks. I was watching a CNN Inside Africa report about this island mm. that... And I didn't realize how small it was till I saw that. Like she, the reporter, goes to visit the island, and it's it's tiny. It's just this little. Yeah. Like you could you could walk across it in about fifteen minutes, ten or fifteen. Wow. Yeah, minutes maybe easily. maybe a square kilometer yeah. or. But a really important square kilometer. Yeah, yeah. So the Portuguese set up shop on uh, what will later become James Island. They start to trade salt and ostrich feathers and iron and pots and pans and firearms with the locals in exchange for ivory, ebony, beeswax, uh, gold, and slaves. Mm. The Portuguese, they they are the ones that have the, I suppose, the honor of naming the place, or at least in a, from a European point of view, they, they stake their own name on it, and they name it after the Portuguese word for trade, which is cambio. Oh. So that's where uh, oh. the word gambia comes from. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Then in 1588, uh, a few years later, the British arrive. Hello. They they always show up at some point in, in, in pretty much all of our episodes. It's really just a question of when. So this is where they arrive here. So British merchants purchased the exclusive rights of trade between uh, the River Senegal and River Gambia. And the success of uh, the Portuguese exploration in the area kind of encourages other Europeans to establish their own trade routes in this area. Mm-hmm. So by the 1600s, there are large estates that are being built up in Brazil by the Portuguese because it's a, that's a, a Portuguese colony in itself and the Portuguese need more people to staff their manners and where estates. Oh, where will we find these where, people? Where can we find people like this? Yeah. So this is the start of the transatlantic slave trade which will grow into a huge uh, industry I guess so at the time. Just a flag here. Sure. Slavery was a reality in Africa already just true yeah like we should we you should know mention that. prisoners of war and like much like in in roman europe mm. prisoners of war yeah. or or people who committed certain crimes would lose their liberty and become property but within the community they were from that that was normal yeah, or they, even they generally weren't transported like hundreds or thousands of miles away yeah. from their native country i think that there there was some internal african slave slavery maybe not necessarily slave trade i guess i guess maybe that's that's the aspect of it that's so horrifying there was this like this commercialization and industrialization of this whole thing that it was this thing that did exist and you know sometimes internally within communities sometimes uh inter-community so from you know the the arab saharan uh traders to to west africa and and maybe even Mm. vice versa who who knows really i'm i'm not not an expert we we just need to be realistic about this like there wasn't universal freedom for all people before Europeans got there. Yeah. The terrible yeah. thing that Europe did was turn it into this... Up to 11. ...transportation to another continent forever uh, with no hope of reprieve. Yeah. And the, the 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 level of work being done in plantations in the Americas was just obscene, where in, in Africa it was more of a situation of uh, I can't pay my debts to you, 
yeah. uh, take me instead and then my family don't have to pay the debt. That that kind of slavery existed. Yeah. I have a quote here that kind of illustrates the multiple kind of ways that uh, Africa in general, and I suppose Gambia more specifically, was exploited during the, during this, this period, I guess. Okay. So this is a, a quote from... Elikia Mbokolo from a piece that she wrote in Le Monde Diplomatique. She says, The African continent was bled of its human resources via all possible routes across the Sahara, through the Red Sea, from the Indian Ocean ports and across the Atlantic. At least 10 centuries of slavery for the benefit of Muslim countries from the 9th to the 19th. 4 million enslaved people exported via the Red Sea and another 4 million through the Swahili ports uh, of the Indian Ocean. And perhaps as many as 9 million people along the Trans-Saharan caravan route and 11 to 20 million, depending on the author, across the Atlantic Ocean. Right. So that gives you a, a kind of an idea of, you know, how many people like how, were basically forcibly removed from this from the continent to, you know, serve as slave labor, not just across the Atlantic. But, yeah. you know, that's obviously the, the largest part of it. And a remarkable proportion of them from West Africa, where we're talking about. Yeah. There's an idea mm-hmm. that I, I read about, and I didn't read so much about this as, as, as yourselves, but it was... I guess, just a different way of looking at this. I mean, the, the human tragedy is very, very obvious. I mean, it's, it, and the whole dehumanization of, of, of people. But almost to take that kind of a half a step further, to, to look at it as an economic transaction, the economic value, you know, totally apart from you know, the, the gold and the salt and the ivory and all these things that were being uh, taken from West Africa, the human capital of you know, the, the, the biggest, fittest, best brightest um that and generally generally men but later also uh women and children as well but just the the people that they were taking from west africa so so grievously impoverished west africa that you know it's never recovered to to take all of their most capable people and to put them on a boat right out of there and to to make make it so that they could not benefit from their own economic uh, potential mm. or ability to contribute um, I mean, there's a reason why West Africa is not, you know, running the world right now. And it, it, it leads back to, to this. It's to, to this terrible uh, dent that their development took from, from this industrialized depopulation. Yep. Yep. Anyway, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to slavery again oh. later. Oh, so it's a, it's a running theme it. in this episode. If you haven't had your fill. Like... So in 1651, uh, the first permanent European settlement was made in uh, Gambia by Baltic Germans, of all people, who built a fort on James Island. They were from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But of course. Known of for course. their colonies. As far as yeah. I can tell, this is their first and possibly only kind of tiny foothold in Africa. Yeah. And it doesn't last for very long. Um, so they, they name it Fort Jacob after uh, Jacob Kettler, the Duke of Courland, and they use it as a trade base. It's taken from them by the Dutch and briefly held by the Dutch until 1659. And then the English captured it in 1661. The Dutch formally cede the island to the English in 1664, and it becomes a uh, key asset in the British presence in the area. Uh, as we mentioned, this, this place will become a British colony. And uh, this is kind of where that starts. Around this time, then, in the 1660s, the Royal African Company was founded by James, the Duke of York, when his brother Charles took the throne for the purposes of exploiting gold in the Gambia. He later became King James II. It's a fascinating story. Like During the time when Oliver Cromwell had killed the Stuart monarch, and there's a period called the Interregnum. Mm. It's happening in England at this point. 
So Oliver Cromwell killed the king, it was Charles I, and made Britain this kind of quasi-republic dictatorship type yeah. uh, Puritan country. It was an odd period. And so this, the Stuarts were kind of just out in the world looking for something yeah, to do. Yeah, stuff and to conquer. Prince Rupert Stuart. Prince Rupert? He he was a, he was a kind of ardent navigator and sailor. And he, he, he'd been in the Gambia for a while and the natives had told him of these big gold deposits in land and Rupert assumed that the gold that the natives in the Gambia were talking about was the gold that's being brought to the Gold Coast modern day Ghana by African traders and sold to the Dutch and the English there. So he thought this is a really great place and when his brother takes back the throne and the Cromwellian regime is, is, is put away immediately the royal family the Stuart family and a group of, of um, merchants petitioned the king for this charter of the Company of Royal Adventurers Trading to Africa. Which is a great name. Official name. Yeah. Great Mm -hmm. name. Top name. Uh, I think it had another couple of lines as well because everything in those days was really long. Mm. So yeah, this Royal Africa Company establishes forts along the West African coast and they are then uh, made responsible for kind of seizing any English ships that attempt to operate in violation of the company's monopoly. So they basically hold the exclusive trading rights for this area at the time on behalf of the British monarchy. The profits from the trading then are split 50-50 between the crown and the company. So this, in the preceding few decades, will make the crown and the company quite rich. Mm -hmm. And and the crown granted them all the land. Yeah, all the land on the West Africa coast from Cape Blanco to the Cape of Good Hope and all adjacent islands for a period of a thousand years, (laughs) uh, which... As I think you've noted here, Joe is a bit optimistic. Uh. Uh, yeah, how any, even any country, uh, let alone any company, could hope to actually actively enforce that. You can is... have all of the land in the world for forever. Yes. Uh, that's that's some papal level of But there's already there. people there, your, your highness. Yeah. So uh, by, the, by the 1680s, the slave trade has swelled and grown, and there's about... 5,000 people are crossing the Atlantic every year, being branded with the the letters D-Y for Duke of oh York, my God. Uh, for the soon-to-be king. Yeah. That's dreadful. Between 1672 and 1689, there were approximately 100,000 people transported across the Atlantic to various uh, different colonies, wow. which resulted in massive profits for the, the British crown and the city of London. Where the merchants were based. Yeah. And in 1692, there's some skirmishes between the English and the French in this area where uh, the English take a couple of small territories from the French but are ousted within one year. And then in 1695, just a few years later, uh, the French take their revenge and come and level the fort at Fort James. The original fort there was destroyed in 1695 but was was later rebuilt. And that brings me up to about 1700. Hello, you're listening to 80 Days Podcast. I'm Nilo Leary, talking to you from Nemban in the Gambia in West Africa. And I've just arrived at Nembam and I'm being welcomed by a big, big celebration. Find out about 80 Days on Twitter at 80 Days Podcast. 
subscribe on iTunes. So the English and French uh, colonial powers are kind of battling it out in the region at this time, Joe. Do you want to give us some idea of how that shook out in the end? Yeah, it's just a constant back and forth. I mean, Fort James gets destroyed and rebuilt so many times. And as, as I said earlier, it's just this tiny little island mm. and small, really small amounts of people on it as well. Like the garrisons would be a couple of, you know, 100, 200 people. So like this is a really small amount of Europeans fighting each other in a land full of Africans who don't really care. On this tiny island in the middle of this massive river. Yeah. In 1702 and 1709, Fort James is taken by the French for brief periods in both those years. First by Captain de la Roque and secondly by a privateer called Monsieur Parent. <laughs> and in that second case, I think you might enjoy knowing that the uh, British command or the English commander was called John Snow. Uh, ah. Which is a... Good name. Very nice. Knows nothing. King of the Gambia. Uh, yeah, and he didn't he didn't hold it very well. Jon Snow's a total failure. So the War of Spanish Succession is going on in Europe around this time, and, and we, we went into a bit of detail on that back in Gibraltar. That involved the English and the French and the Spanish and most of Europe fighting each other over something or other. <laughs> and in the shakedown, you had the Treaty of Utrecht signed at the end of the war in 1713. During the War of Spanish Succession, both the Senegal Company, which was the French company running out of the Senegal River, and the Royal African Company wanted to keep West Africa neutral. So they both actually assisted each other, and with the agreement of their governments, they assisted each other keeping the natives in line and not disrupting trade. So even though their home countries were at war with each other, they they kept a kind of a, a peace between themselves to an extent. So even like a, a, a literal like fight to the death on the European mainland, mm-hmm. that's no excuse to, to let up on the slavery Africa. lads. Yeah, yeah. Oh my word. So the RAC's administration of the Gambia was pretty much laughable at this point. Their forts were run down from constant being taken by the French. The locals kept attacking them for some reason. Uh, no idea what might have prompted that. Oh. And um, there was lots of embezzlement as well. <laughs> There's a guy called John Chidley, and he, he, he seems to have been incredibly corrupt. He, he just, uh, you know, he had, he had high-handed conduct with many of the chiefs that made them hate the English. He would, like, attack various local kings in order to get slaves back, which would then endanger trading vessels because the local king would be annoyed at the English, would attack their trading vessels. You know, when you're trying to use a small amount of people to run a, a trade in a, in a big country, annoying the locals is a stupid idea. To, to be fair to Chidley, mm. though, just from, from what you were describing, I thought it was going to be more... Like, that sounds a little like their normal day-to-day anyway. You know, attacking the locals, taking their people, putting mm, them on no, boats no, and sending them away. See, it's... It's, um... Their modus operandi in the slave trade was as trade. So when the Royal African Company was running the slave trade in in the Gambia, they were buying prisoners of war and criminals from the local tribes. Okay. It was that kind of a trade. And so that didn't annoy the local people because it was within their customs. Instead, they could have sold them to Arab traders, they could have sold them to another tribe, or they could sell them to the English who were paying more. But as far as they were concerned, this was a punishment. It was when, around this time, the British Crown decided to liberalise the slave trade. They, because of this corruption and embezzlement and the, 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 bad, the, the bad condition of the forts, 
they decided to let any British subjects be involved in the slave trade, provided they paid a 10% subsidy to oh, no. the Royal African Company. This is when things got really, really depraved. And because these private businesses who weren't a crown operation and had no interest in the stability of the region for continued trade in ivory and beeswax and, and gold, they would just go inland and raid and kidnap people. Uh, that's really when this started, when it became a, I mean, a free market private enterprise that anyone could do. Slavery yeah, the argument becomes there is kidnapping. Like, pe- people are going against the rules, therefore let's remove these problematic rules. That I mean, mm. it, it's almost like in, in the, the aftermath of the 2008 uh, uh, banking and economic crash, there a lot of you know legislation was put in place to to hold the banks to certain paths of money making, and now there's a lot of pressure to get rid of those restrictions for no other reason than oh man it's tough man it's difficult we don't like we don't like all yeah. this regulation we we would prefer it not to be there okay mm. that's your only yeah. argument like that's it's it's similar like that 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 is the that's what commercial entities are Do. generally all about like they'll yeah. always push for more freedom and more opportunities to make money and have fewer rules that's kind of their job a little bit yeah and it's, and it's the job, of, job to it's the job the of, of states and societies to stop some of the worst excesses of that yeah uh, and so it, it seems like when the crown ran the company it was it was still awful but it was within this it was it was within the social norms of the societies that were Agreed there already. Parameters of awfulness. Yeah. So yeah, in the Treaty of Utrecht at the end of the War of Spanish Succession, 1713, uh, the French gave up their outstanding claim to the castle of the Gambia, which is James Island. And also Britain somehow got a 30-year monopoly on the slave trade to Spanish colonies as a reward for for winning the war. Their participation in that war. More money. So that the, the, the Spanish colonies in America required 5,000 Africans per year to come Great. from the British transatlantic slave trade and the British ran this trade not necessarily out of the Gambia exclusively but they, they ran it and that, that results in about 3 million people being transported over the next couple of decades which wow. is wonderful pretty awful mm. a lot of people um, in the 1720s piracy is a big problem uh, you get characters like the Welsh pirate Howell Davis who Claimed he was running away from some French uh, privateers. These despicable and pirates are James. disrupting our slave trade. <laughs> Such <Yep>. terrible people. <laughs> I mean, it would be oh. okay to say that if they weren't stealing the slaves and then selling I, them I themselves. Guess. Like, you know, they're, they're, no. not, they're not, they're not uh, liberating. They're the not slaves. any better than the. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but yeah, Howell Davis parked up at Fort James looking for protection. Was invited to dinner by the company commander. And then held him to ransom for two two thousand pounds, and then stole the guns from the fort. So <laughs> he just because I need your protection. Also, I'm I'm stealing everything you have that isn't bolted down. And um, ran, wait, and he thanks. ransomed the the commander of the fort. He ransomed. Nice. Yeah. This is how bad things were for the wow. company. They just they had nothing. They, one ship of pirates just could just come in and take everything completely. Yeah, nice. and some of the pirates were actually former employees who realized there was more money in piracy. Like that tends to be a, a pattern throughout history of piracy is kind of people going these these pirates are uh, doing pretty well for themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, also the state was allowing people to be pirates. Like privateering was sort yeah. of you can be a pirate provided you only pirate for us French ships. Yes. Yeah, and as, as you know, you you pay 
you pay your percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, seventeen thirty. Uh, Francis Moore visits Fort James. So he's a he's sort of he's a writer and he writes about his journeys in Africa, oh. chronicling them. He's a chronicler. That's what he is. So he notes that Fort James has a has in addition to the company governor and a company of soldiers, there's um, a cooper, a joiner, a linguist, a surgeon, a carpenter, a gunner, a bombardier, a purveyor, a surveyor, a warehouse keeper, <laughs> an accountant. 13 Wait, clerks, a, 8 factors, no idea, uh, 2 gardeners, a wax refiner, a tanner, an armourer and a steward. So, you know, a lot of lot of professions in this small place, but one of each. Um, they ran the trade in gold, beeswax, beads, ivory and slaves from up the river. They would pick up these people and things at places like Jor and Gillifrey. The Mandinka merchants who sold them the gold in particular were very very cagey about both where they came from and where the gold came from mm. so they never did quite figure out the gold source but the company's principal trade was still in slaves they couldn't have just kept with the beads no. beads weren't really doing it for them no they weren't and so Francis Moore wasn't impressed by slavery as, as a, an institution so his comments actually inspired some abolitionists back in England to, to realise that slavery was awful having seen it firsthand. But he, he comments that basically it led to trivial crimes being punished by slavery. Uh. So whereas it used to be murder and, you know, big stuff, when the lucrative trade and selling your slaves yeah. to the English comes along, a lot of tribal groups start punishing. Like There's one account in that book of a, a guy who stole a tobacco pipe being sold into slavery. So in, in Moore's book, when he's discussing the trade of commodities, he's kind of talking about, oh, you know, this much for ivory and this much for gold. And then just kind of casually goes, um, the men and women used to be much dearer than the boys and girls, which is a horrifying sentence to begin with. Mm. Uh, but there have been so many vessels in late years for young slaves to carry to Cadiz or to Lisbon uh, that there is scarce any difference anymore between the price of young slaves and grown ones. It's a real growth market, guys. It's, Get into the ground floor. Yep. Uh, so that's wow. horrible. Uh, but he then criticises uh, his society, his culture for being involved in this. And spoke of it as kind of a, a blindness that seems to affect the whole civilised world for over two centuries now. And the whole description of the conditions of life for the native population into whose lands we intruded is a lurid picture thrown upon the professed Christianity of the European nations engaged in this horrid traffic. So I'm not saying his book isn't a little bit a little bit racist. It is. You know, he does talk in terms of civilised people mm. and how when Africans do something that is their own thing, it's not. But he yeah. clearly sees in a way that most of Europe didn't think about or didn't want to think about how just So, not much of an arsehole at all then? No, no, he's all right. Yeah. My favourite story from this, this uh, era is Job, son of Solomon, Prince of Bunda. He's also known as Ayub ibn Suleiman in, in Arabic. So Bunda's actually in modern-day Senegal, but the story happens in the Gambia. Mm. But he's basically a, a a prince, like the son of a chief. Right. He, he's been sent by his father to sell some prisoners of war into slavery to Captain okay. Pike of the Royal African Company Okay. on the Gambia River. And I th- think he doesn't like the price that Pike's offering, so he crosses the river to the south against his uh, his father's suggestion because the Mandingos hate his father 
and he tries to get a better price from them, but they actually just uh, enslave him. Okay. And his his companions, they shave his head to make him look like a prisoner of war, and then they bring him to Captain Pike and sell him and the guys he was going to sell. Oh man! Into oh, slavery. Oh god! Wow! And Pike does listen to Job and says, oh, "You say you're a prince. You do seem very well spoken." If you can get a message to your father before I ship out, and he'll buy you, that's cool. But he shipped out pretty soon after. And so Job was transported to Annapolis in Maryland. And for two years, he was a really, really bad slave. Like, he, he had never worked a day in his life, from what I can tell. So he's put to work in the fields and he was just... This sounds somewhat somewhat similar to 12 Years a Slave. Yeah, except with a with an ocean in the middle. Yeah. 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 Mm. Um, if the character in 12 Years a Slave had come from the Gambia and a royal family in the Gambia rather than Washington, yeah. So, like, he, he, yeah, he wasn't a particularly good slave in the fields. I think the boot minted a house. That's a criticism. Yeah. Eventually he came into contact with some people. I think he ran away. He, he seemed very educated and he prayed f- frequently in a way that looked pretty Mohammedan, as they call it. Um, and they asked him to write, and he could write. He wrote some Arabic and pronounced the words Muhammad and Allah. They went, right, this guy's definitely a, a Muslim. Uh, this isn't what we expected from a slave. Uh, he also wouldn't drink. So, again, evidence. And this, re- this really weird story, Kind of, he's, he's explaining himself, and there happens to be another slave in the place he's run away to who speaks Wolof, so they can communicate and the other slave translates and says, oh, this guy's a prince from uh, <laughs> from Bunda. Uh, he really shouldn't be here. And also, can I so, leave with him? <laughs> yeah, well, no. <laughs> also, he also I'm says to set me free. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So this story yeah. is told by Thomas Blewett, who, who, who observed it firsthand. Uh, and it's it's told again by, by Francis Moore. But the, the director of the Royal African Company hears about him. A guy called James Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe? Oglethorpe? And he he, uh, decides to buy him and bring him back to London. Because he's clearly intrigued by the whole idea. This fellow sounds interesting. I shall buy him. Okay, so... But not so intrigued that he doesn't then leave London to found the colony of Georgia. But wait, so... So he buys him, brings him to London, and then... But but before he gets to London, Oglethorpe has left to found the colony of Georgia. So uh, what does he do in London? He no one's really sure what to do with him because there were no instructions left. So he kind of hangs around and and like becomes a curiosity among the the elite in London as a kind of oh, oh look man. we have a Muslim prince how wonderful. Uh, oh my God. And eventually he's returned to his country, and was described as the only man save one to return from slavery. Now Henry Fenwick Reeve, a historian, notes the irony of him being a slaver himself yes and yet being appalled at his own enslavement now Europeans were appalled that this educated man would be a slave when he had himself been selling slaves uh, you know um, in the kind of uh, this is what this is what I've been doing to people yeah oh I don't like this at all this is this is clearly dreadful uh, I mean if only every slaver was forced to go into slavery for several years and moved across you know the world several times you know then then probably we'd all just get along you yep. know Another famous slave from this era is Kunta Kinte, who was a character in a famous novel called Roots. And I think you guys know a bit more about that than me. Roots was something that I was aware of. Like, it gets referenced quite a lot as, you know, a hugely significant, I think, the the televisation of the novel. 
um, is something that was a, a massive watershed in uh, in American TV. Yeah, it definitely became a lot more famous after it was adapted into a into a TV series. I feel like the book itself was quite popular initially, but then it sort of exploded in popularity after uh, it was made yeah. into a tele- tele- TV series. I remember my dad talking to me about it. Actually, it was very like a big sort of television event in his generation, I believe. Yeah. What was the author's name again? Uh, Alex Haley. Alex Haley. Okay. Uh, so he basically a... says that Kunta Kinte, who was a real slave, transported from the Gambia, he claims that he's his ancestor. Isn't that the story? Yeah. So I think mm. five or six generations on. So he, he's an American uh, author. This guy's an African-American and he, he claims he's descended from this Gambian slave. And then in the story, he tells, this, he, he dramatizes the story of how Kunta Kinte becomes a slave and comes to America. Yeah. So, Brought to America and a lot of terrible things happen. And, you know, he, 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 he and in fact, actually, the story that you were saying about uh, somebody brought from Gambia and is not a very good slave and tries to escape a bunch of times and so on. That is not totally dissimilar mm. to what I know of the story. Of and Kunta I think Kinte, he goes to Annapolis as well. Uh, I think that was where the trade happened. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, just a little bit about the, the, the author to just give you an idea of the context of him and, and maybe also why Roots was such a, a seminal piece of work. He uh, conducted the first interview for Playboy magazine and it was with Miles Davis. Then he subsequently did a, an interview with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King with uh, Playboy, which is the longest interview that Martin Luther King ever did. He also did the autobiography of Malcolm X. So he had many interviews with Malcolm X and he wrote a, um, a movie called Superfly TNT. And I mean, he, he has been since commemorated in uh, you know lots of different ways. Uh, he was a, a member of the Coast Guard I think maybe in World War Two. I wasn't sure about that. Yeah, 39 to 59. But he was subsequently honored by them naming a ship after him. Yeah. So uh, he was a very significant figure himself also. This novel has, has been a really big tourist draw for the Gambia. Mm. And they've really uh, made something of it. And they have a biannual festival, a roots festival. And it's, I suppose, a lot of tourism is particularly aimed at the black diaspora in the West. Uh, mm-hmm. particularly African-Americans, mm. but also in, in, in France and in the UK, to kind of find their roots, as it were. The town in Joffrey, mm. just opposite James Island, is, is a big tourist location where, where your friend Niall went, and he actually did an interview with a tour guide there. The island, James Island, is now called Kunta Kinte Island for the last couple of years in memory of this man. Um, so this is Niall talking to the tour guide Dudu about the slave trade and, and about the tours that are offered there. So we are now in Joffrey at the exhibition center to the slave trade that happened in Gambia, made famous by the Roots movie and book. Yeah. And we're here with the guide. Dudu. And uh, Dudu is going to give a quick summary of the regional and international significance of this site. Now, I am the guide of the roots here. Now, the importance of this is to all about to touch, especially our black diasporas in the western, to come down to see their roots where they original from. So, there was some slavery in Africa in the 1200s or 1300s. Is that correct? But it became much larger with the involvement of the European and colonial powers. Of course, uh, it's true. Uh, in fact, uh, the slavery was uh, like uh, going on in Africa here. 
even before coming of the Europe, so like we used to have our own African way of uh, slavery here, which we know as domestic slave. But this was within the Africans themselves when we used to live in empires like the biggest empire known as Mali and the Ghana Empire. And so like if smaller. I cannot... Uh, pay my tax, I offer myself to you and I be your slave. But it is much smaller yeah. than before the Europeans came. It is larger and larger and after we have also the Arabs coming from the north of Africa which they cross uh, the desert and come to West Africa. Like camels they do, starting the and trade. their camels and do their legitimate trade with the West African people here. Yeah. You see. So after when the Europeans take foot, it become more expand and more larger than it was in Africa before. Yeah. Uh, some guides will tell the tourists that uh, black people sell their own people to the western it's very wrong I always emphasize on this and these people I am always denying to call them a slave they are victimized they are not slaves they can be only slaves when they reach to America they have no choice these people were hunt like animals in the jungle here and they were captured taken to that island there 15 to 20 million imagined people were being carried from West Africa 15 to 20 because million people. It is more affected here than the, you know, around Gold Coast of Ghana because in Ghana they were interested on in trade like uh, diamonds and golds were robbed there. But in West Africa here they were concentrated on humans, you know. Yeah, that's that the why they, you know, it is less population. Africa was empty, obviously. Yeah. It was about 10 colonial powers. It was 10 colonial powers. And that started in. Started the trade. In 1446, you see, like Manson few like the Portuguese, the French, the Dutch, and then etc. and etc. And this continued until the and 18th this century. This was uh, this trade was continued until 1807. You imagine, yeah. and people were being carried like that uh, randomly in Africa. So yeah. Africa obviously is empty and less population now. So if somebody goes on a holiday to Gambia and goes to the tourist areas in Banjul. They can take a tour here, and they can come to this historic site. Yes. Uh, and maybe you can give them a tour around. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Um, in 1744, although the company had loads of forts, now it was just James Island. They'd had run-ins with local kings, like the king of Barsali, who, who sacked their trading post at Jor, rifled the factory, and drank all of their cognac. Uh, this nice. is worth mentioning. There's many descriptions of the factors and company employees drinking themselves to death, fighting with locals, being killed by their servants or slaves in a mutiny. So things weren't going great for the company. And eventually, in 1752, various acts of parliament reformed the slave trade. The Royal African Company ceased to exist, and it was compensated for its property. And now any of George's II subjects could trade slaves if they paid a fee of 40 shillings for membership of, an, of the new... Company merchants trade in Africa. So this is kind of like a, a steal, a license to trade, should we say? The slave traders club. Yeah, sounds almost like franchising. Yeah, yeah, no. That's, I was thinking of Costco membership. That's kind of all of these terrible analogies are, yeah. are fair. During the Seven Years' War in 1758-79, Britain defeated France and occupied the Senegal area and founded a, a briefly lived Senegambia colony. So this is the first time Senegambia is used to describe the area. It didn't last long, but it comes back again. The American Revolution kind of drew, drew the attention of both France and Britain away from here. And in the Treaty of Versailles after that, in 1783, Britain was 
granted possession of Fort James and the River Gambia, except for one trading post the French were given on the north bank called Albreda. During this period, there were loads of expeditions. We talked about the obsession with Timbuktu. They kept sending guys to go upriver alone with no supplies, with no idea where they were going to try and find Timbuktu because they were convinced that the um, the Gambia was connected to the Niger River. And it isn't at all. Yeah, it's not. Uh, not even a little bit. Different rivers. Yep. Yeah. Um, but they were convinced that if they went inland, they'd find that anyway. Uh, Mungo Park is a famous uh, explorer of this period, but mostly people just died of horrible diseases or being killed by the locals. Now, some good news. Uh, the 19th century was nice. In 1807, the British Parliament abolishes the slave trade by an act, and the woo. corporation is shattered. Now, they don't abolish Yay. slavery, just the trade. Kind of, woo. So, like, no, no new slaves, but if you've got them already, you can keep them, which okay. is it's a step in the right direction. So a subsidy of £23,000 a year was given to the, the corporation that existed to upkeep their assets and forts. Fort James is pretty much abandoned because what purpose did it serve now? And the Gambia is ruled from Sierra Leone, a British settlement. When in 1814, Governor Sir Charles McCarthy went to investigate Fort James to see if that would be a good place to, to re-establish capital, he decided not to and moved to Banjul, an island at the mouth of the river, uh, an island called St. Mary's. And uh, actually it was called Bathurst at the time, after the colonial minister, but now the, the city is called Banjul, so we'll, we'll call it Banjul. And that's the modern-day capital. Kind of towards the yeah. mouth of the river. And it was good for trading. Uh, in 1820, mm. there are Methodist missionaries come to uh, Banjul, and they set up the only school Ooh. that's... Methodists are intense... <laughs> Uh, the school had 40 students, some of whom were French, some Jolof chiefs' sons and Mandinka chiefs' sons. And they, the, the, the Methodists, the Wesleyans, still run a lot of education in the country and it's, are quite highly praised. Even though most people, there's very few Methodists, their schools are very well thought of. In 1822, the King of Barra cedes what's called the Ceded Mile to the British, which is a 36-mile long, one-mile deep tract of land along the north bank of the River Gambia. He was paid a pension in thanks for this. But decades later, the Crown just took it. Fort Bullen was set up at the mouth of the river uh, to help stop slaving. Between Banjul and Fort Bullen, their guns could cover most of the river mouth and shoot at ships trying to bring slaves out of the Gambia. It turns out uh, promoting slavery is a lot more profitable than trying to stamp it out. Yes, it is. It it costs a lot and uh, you don't get to sell people. Mm. Um. There was a significant disturbance when King Kementeng in Upper Niani started disrupting trade in the Upper River Gambia, the upper reaches of the, the Gambia. And also he, he was fighting with the chief of Kataba and other local kings. And this led to actually Lieutenant Governor George Rendell forming a, a military force which went into the land and started putting down these uh, rebellions and signing treaties with the locals to protect them from this one particular aggressive king. And so that starts to cement British hold over a lot of Gambia. Was it really a rebellion or was it just, from what you're describing, it sounds more just like being opportunistic. Like He was disrupting trade and fighting with all of his neighbours. So he was he was causing instability. But it has a taste of divide and conquer about it. Like, man, this this guy's terrible. But the the, the chief of Kataba asked the British for help. Yeah. So, I don't know. 
a feature that we saw in Liberia again is, oh, no. is the resettling <laughs> oh, no. of uh, of former slaves okay. happens here. So mostly Sierra Leone is where the British send freed slaves and people saved from from slaving ships. But they also set up a, you might call it a colony on McCarthy Island, modern day Jajambure. How does it go? Uh, I, it I goes dread okay. to ask. It goes okay. The freed slaves are taught skills like farming and uh, brick making and so on. But it was unpopular with the natives because they still practiced slavery within their own society. That's deeply confusing to me, Joe. Yes. I have is. no idea how to feel about that, frankly. So while the white man had seen the error of his ways, yeah, it's it's very, it's an awkward one. Um, oh, boy. And the the, uh, the Wuli and Niani Batang people did destroy McCarthy Island for a period and re-enslave some of these liberated slaves. I'm so tired of slavery, Joe. I know. I'm so uh, sick of it. But in the end... Yeah, so much slavery. In the end calculus, these liberated slaves ended up becoming quite a privileged class in Ga- in the Gambia because they got better education than the non-previously enslaved Gambians. Uh, and then the rest of the 19th century is just spent uh, annexing bits of various kingdoms like Combo and um, taking Oyster Creek. You're just just annexing left, right and centre and eventually coalescing into the protectorate and colony of the Gambia. One Irish connection, Governor Luke O'Connell, born in Dublin, he, he extended the territory a lot, and he also uh, subdued lots of what he described as Mohammedan rebels uh, who were getting a bit uppity. So he, 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 he used this uh, religious extremism to basically take the kingdom of Combo from the natives. Um, yeah, so that brings us up to uh, the, the late 19th century. Nice to know that that that, that kind of thing is not a. Uh, yeah, not a <laughs> we've got that sorted. But thankfully, that doesn't happen anymore. And this this is Ooh. the period when most most people in the Gambia convert to Islam. So now it's about ninety percent of the population. Beforehand, it had been a mixture of Islam and indigenous beliefs, but now it's sort of people are mostly Muslims, but not that into it, from what I can tell. Not not that extreme. But I I think uh, like we were chatting about this off air beforehand that it's it's they're they're Muslim and whatever that might mean and there are different like kinds of Muslims. they pray on Fridays. Yeah, but they, For sure. they have so many of their own uh, more kind of Mandinka-based traditions and stuff yeah. that are almost kind of incorporated into their version mm-hmm. of, of Islam that it maybe is not necessarily super recognizable to somebody from, say, Indonesia. Um, it's, yeah, it's a, exactly. it's a different mm. different flavor. Yeah, so we just touched on native Mandinka traditions there. So this is another clip from our friend Niall who in this clip is watching a griot storyteller, which is a traditional kind of storyteller in the region, uh, who is playing a instrument called a kora. Kora is made of a big fruit called calabas. And in the old days in the Gambia, people used to hunt and kill leopards, lions, antelopes. They use the antelope skin for the kora. But when the protection of the environment came, they use the cow skin instead of antelope skins now. 
Skora. All together is 21 strings. All the beautiful stories and the history of Africa lies between the strings of this instrument, the Kora, which is found in the smiling coast of Africa, the Gambia. So that was uh, recorded at a show by an uh, artist called Jali Alagi Mbeye, uh, who again was playing a traditional kora. So, Mark, uh, next we got setting the borders for this uh, oddly shaped country. Do you want to do you want to give us a little bit on that? The the story about this is that they sailed a boat up the river and they shot out cannonballs from the cannons and as far as they could shoot a cannonball that was the gambia now i don't think anybody there's no real basis for that story but it, it, if you look at the map it does follow the track the trace of the the river and it extends out about like 10 kilometers either side uh, so it, it's it is a very very narrow country in 1888 they had a, a a conference with the french i couldn't find many details about this but it, it seemed to be I guess quite a common occurrence for the the French and the British to convene and discuss their uh, their their foreign possessions. How to carve up other people's land? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, the two colonial superpowers opened negotiations about where exactly the boundary between the two would lie. Originally, it was uh, six miles north and south of the river, and east as far as uh, Yarbutenda, the furthest navigable point on the river. They had this conference in eighteen eighty nine. France ceded control fully and officially of the Gambia River to Britain and the present day boundaries were drawn during this conference. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it didn't actually take this story of, you know, cannibals and stuff. At the same time, from here on, the, the British were a little bit kind of struggling to assert their authority. They ran into trouble with a slave raiding chief in 1892 called Fodi Kaba and uh, another called Fodi Sila in, in 1894. They were giving them a lot of trouble because, I mean, the, the the borders are not hard borders. So people could attack the British and run back over the border into French territory. And it's kind of awkward to then run after them. You have to kind of get the thumbs up from the French back in France before you can do something like that. So it's, it's very difficult to do. Uh, and yeah, there's quite a few stories of uh, just them struggling to maintain this uh, small and no longer very um, lucrative. Yeah. yeah, profitable, lucrative colony anymore. And there's not really a lot about it. They're just kind of hanging out, uh, trying to keep the slave raiders away, who are still uh, a, a going concern. Uh, moving on a little bit into the 20th century, the British imposed indirect rule on the interior. They established uh, a local uh, legislature, courts, etc. They divided into 35 chiefdoms, each with its own chief. And the real power was concentrated with the British governor and his staff in Banjul slash Bathurst. And there was a distinction between the colony, which was Bathurst, Yes, and, and, and the protectorate, and, which, and was the protector, which was the rest of the country. And people in the yeah. colony, I think, could vote and stuff. Um, they at least had an, inf an input into public policy and public life. Yeah, but people, people in the protectorate, protectorate not kind of, so much. Yeah. Going on to World War One, Gambian troops fought in World War One. it seems, although it's very hard to find out whether specifically they were involved. It was the uh, West African Frontier Force, 
was a, a grouping brought together from uh, Nigeria, the Gold Coast, and Sierra Leone, including Gambia. Gambia was a, a tiny, tiny part of this. As far as I can tell, maybe no more than a few hundred, two, three, four hundred uh, Gambians fighting in World War One, And it, it seems that they didn't leave Africa. They, they fought in uh, Cameroon and in German East Africa, which is modern day uh, Tanzania, mm. Rwanda and Burundi. Their uniforms were khaki drill shorts, red fezes, scarlet zouave style jackets edged in yellow. So pretty, pretty cool. Pretty stylish. Yeah. yeah. And that same grouping of, of, of troops was actually held together and was then given the, uh, I don't know what the term is, they, they, were, they were made... Uh, king approved basically they got royal before their name so oh, okay. as, as opposed to just being the West African Frontier Force they then became the Royal West African Frontier Force and yeah they, that that grouping continued on to fight in, in World War II also yeah Th- there's a bit of a polity emerging around the capital where you, you do start to get locally born African people being involved in politics it's just to name two there was the Forster family who were from this kind of liberated slave group and they, they became quite significant merchants and had an influence in politics. And then in 1929, a guy called Edward Francis Small led a successful strike of dock workers in, in, in Banjul or Bathurst looking for better conditions and, and started to put pressure on the British in that way. He's considered the father of Gambian nationalism and set up a newspaper to kind of promote that idea and went around the world speaking about African self-determination and eventually ends up in the legislative council that the British have. So there's kind of a push towards self-determination in the start of the 20th century because there really aren't that many white people there. No reason to be. So the weirdness of the colonial setup, it becomes obvious. Yeah, well, that will only continue through World War II. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, Mark, Gambian troops served again in World War II. This time they did leave Africa. Gambian troops and troops from West Africa in general were actually quite crucial here. Their, their sort of best known engagement, I guess, in World War II under the Allies was in uh, Burma, mm-hmm. where they were integral to driving out the Japanese in 1944. Oh. They contributed several thousand troops, I believe, to that effort. I read um, more than 4,000 Gambians were conscripted, hmm. which is a lot of Gambians. Yep, that's a lot of Gambians from a very, very small country, as we've mentioned. And also, I, I suppose from a from a more of a tactical point of view, Gambia and Banjul, uh, more specifically, served as a very important air base for Allied forces. Mm-hmm. There's kind of this longer article that kind of goes into more detail about this, which is called How West Africa Helped Win World War II, which we'll add a link to in the mm-hmm. show notes if you want to dive more into this kind of history. Mm-hmm. But the gist of it is that uh, after France falls and Italy seizes British positions in Kenya and Egypt and Sudan, and then in 1941, Rommel drives the British forces out of Libya and into Egypt. So there's basically sort of a you know a, a very heavy, uh, heavily concentrated Axis presence in sort of the the middle of Africa, I guess. Mm-hmm. So the only remaining route to resupply the uh, colony in Egypt was around the Cape of Good Hope, which would have taken at the time about three months to sail. So mm. the only kind of way to to keep uh, Egypt supplied was via West Africa. So they used the West African airfields, including the Gambia, to supply Egypt. Uh, became known as the West African Reinforcement Route. I guess, I guess the local people helped greatly with this in um, assembling 
airplanes and building roads and uh, runways and establishing airfields and this kind of thing. There is a World War II cemetery in uh, the Gambia mm. with 203 uh, Commonwealth burials there. Mm. Uh, and I read that they lost about 288 people in total. All right. I guess of particular relevance to the area, and this is this is something that we touched on earlier, is uh, 1941, the Atlantic Charter was issued, a joint sort of US and British statement on the state of the world. And part of that in clause, clause three was they, uh, indicating the British and US governments, must respect the rights of all people to choose the form of government under which they will live. And they wish to see sovereign rights and self-government uh, restored to those who have, that have been forcibly deprived of them. And the newspaper called the West African Pilot, uh, which was based out of Nigeria, noted that Churchill had very quickly uh, reneged on that and said that, that that clause did not apply to Africa. Oh, my God. They, they, they meant like Belgium and Poland, yes, you know, exactly. real countries. Oh, Churchill's yeah. such a bollocks. So... Uh, Roosevelt uh, disagreed with him and this kind of spurs on this anti-colonialism uh, sentiment mm -hmm. and Roosevelt was crucial to that so he actually stopped overnight in Banjul en route to uh, the Casablanca conference in 1943 which was the first visit to the African continent by an American president while in office Wow! shortly yeah. after he wrote to Churchill and described the place as a quote-unquote hellhole uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and yeah, well, that's a, a glowing oh, wow. report. Uh, thanks, FDR. And uh, there's a there's a letter, an official letter that you can find on um, the presidential library website. I'm going to read a lengthy kind of quote here, but I think it's I think it's very illustrative of of Roosevelt's feelings on the Gambia and particularly on kind of African uh, colonies at the time. So he said, I looked it up with a little study and I got to the point of view that for every dollar that the, that the British who have been there for 200 years have put into the Gambia, they have taken out 10 it's just plain exploitation of these people. They're given a half cup of rice, dirt, disease, very high mortality rate. Life expectancy, you'd never guess what it is, 26 years. These people are treated... Yeah. What? I, I, I wasn't able to verify that, but that's what that's certainly what Roosevelt wrote. Like we, we, we'd all be dead. These people, he said, uh, are treated worse than livestock. The cattle live longer than they do. Uh, the one main asset is peanuts, and the natives grow a lot of peanuts. How do they grow them? They have been growing them now for years, and they use a, a little pointed stick. Nobody ever saw a plow in, Gam in the Gambia. The British have never done a thing about it. Now, as I say, we've got to realize that in a country like Gambia, and there are a lot of them down there, the people who are in the overwhelming majority have no possibility of self-government for a long time. But we've got to move the way that we did in the Philippines to teach them self-government. So I think that was like a private letter uh, to yeah. his son, but that that definitely kind of illuminates his feelings on the state of Africa at the time. Holy! And we 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 hadn't mentioned peanuts yet, so that's good to get out yeah. of the way. That's the main export ground ground nuts. Yeah, about the eighteen sixties. Yeah, ground nuts. Same thing, yeah. I think. Tens of thousands yeah. of tons per yep. year of peanuts. That's that. That's the yep. economy and tourism, and tourism now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so after the war, many Gambians became eager for independence and critical of their colonial overlords. This happened a lot after World it War Two. We we have that sentence in so many yeah, episodes. Exactly. Like after World War Two and dying for stuff, the people went, yeah. you know what? We deserve a bit we, of we deserve a bit of self government here. We think we can take care of ourselves. So this is something that Roosevelt and after him Truman would clash with Churchill and the British on. U.S., as, a, as I mentioned before, was eager to see decolonization escalate after the end of the war. In 1963, America gave $94 million to West African countries, including $2.1 million to Senegal. I couldn't find how much they gave to Gambia, but they, yeah, they, they kind of... Less. Less, definitely, but uh, 
they definitely were keen on helping out these these colonies. Mm. In 1960, the new constitution introduces universal adult suffrage to the Gambia. And that's really important it is. because now the people in the protectorate yeah. can vote. So it's not just confined to... And yeah. the political nice. agitation that's been going on there with the, uh, what were they called, the Protectorate People's Party? Yeah, the PPP. That becomes a big voting block yeah. now. So the government now consists of four British departmental heads, the governor and six African ministers. And then in 1962... Elections put Dauda Jarawa into office as a chief minister. This guy was educated abroad and was indoctrinated into mm -hmm. politics as a student in the UK. In Edinburgh, I think he joined the Labour Party and the African Association of Students. And then he later studied in Liverpool, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. But weirdly, earlier in his life, he'd studied in, in modern day Ghana and met Kwame Nkrumah, who was the father of, of the Ghanaian nation. And it didn't have any impact on him. Like when he was younger, he just didn't <laughs> care about politics. And something happened to him in the All UK right. where he just kind of got into it. Mm. But that that should have been the moment. It should <laughs> but, have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I met Martin Luther King, didn't really turn me on to civil rights. Yeah. But then later, right. I met some random organiser. That, now that lit me up. <laughs> it's that kind of a... So as as kind of one of the, I guess, unfortunate that it is, like the situation is that he's one of the few Gambians to have been educated and university educated abroad. Mm. Uh, so after he returns to Gambia, mm -hmm. he's encouraged to run for political office in uh, 1960 under the banner of the PPP. You should totally do it. No, you'd be great. You'd be so, so good. You just do he, he it. He was also, he, he was a vet. He was a vet, And so yeah. he actually traveled a lot of the country mm. as a vet, ah. treating cattle and so on. So he knew everyone. Yeah, that's important in an agricultural country. He, yeah, he'd, he'd worked with a lot of large landowners and uh, cattle farmers and that yeah. kind of thing. So he did know a lot of different people. So the Protectorate People's Party, they, they were originally sort of a, a rural-based Mandinka-heavy party, Juarez and Mandinka, and this was known as the Green Revolution. Yeah. The centre of gravity in, 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 in Gambian politics shifts towards the countryside. Yeah, so the rural population elects uh, Jarawa into office. He becomes prime minister in 1962, and Britain finally concedes and starts to withdraw from the colony and kind of... Uh, initiates a peaceful handover of. In some ways, I think they were they were almost pushing it. Mm. They, they were kind of pursuing decolonization yeah. at this point. So it was given peacefully. There was no fight for independence no. here. It just happened. Quite expensive, I think, to keep the administration yeah. uh, connections going for that. And at the time, they were just trying to tidy up and push push off the edge of the boat as many colonies as they could as rapidly as they could. So they achieved their independence on uh, February eighteenth, nineteen sixty five. Uh, as a constitutional monarchy within the British Commonwealth. And shortly thereafter, the government proposes a conversion from a monarchy to a republic, which fails to receive the two-thirds majority sure. required to do so. But the results of the election were widely praised abroad because uh, of their kind of observance of secret balloting and honest elections and civil rights and liberties. So they're clear clearly kind of embracing democracy at this time and, mm -hmm. you know, not Mm -hmm. Not as we've seen in, in many other recently post-colonial societies kind of rigging elections and allowing strong men to come in and uh, manipulate the polit political process. So, yeah. so when that was happening all over the continent, Gambia has a functioning democracy. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll catch up, lads. Yeah. yeah. So in, in 1970, it does finally become a republic and Jawara is, is the head of state for what 25 30 I think years it's five terms uh, yeah ppp rule for 30 years but but in fairly fought elections like he just keeps winning yeah. it's not a matter there's no real question of any kind of vote rigging or or yeah or anything so there's a quote here from arnold hughes's political history of the gambia 
Following independence, Gambians refuted the claims of sceptics, British as well as African, that such a small state could not long survive the economic challenges of statehood without being absorbed by its larger neighbour, Senegal, or only surviving as a client state to its former rulers. Doubts were also expressed about the political skills of the country's newly elected and inexperienced political leaders. Yet here too, the Gambia came to acquire a reputation both for political stability and an unusually democratic system of government. Credit for this enviable state of affairs goes as much to the Gambians themselves as to their leaders. Gambian politics has been characterised by a lack of extremism. Uh, he also noted that the relations with the British were pretty good yeah. and political parties just had elections with each other. They didn't disappear people, they didn't have political use of violence. Jawara, I think, on the general analysis, would be considered a, a good and honourable leader in, 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 the, in the long term. I think so. Fast forwarding a little mm. bit, like he he doesn't he doesn't last forever, and when he eventually eventually goes, I wouldn't quite say yeah, good I'll, I'll, leader, like not that. openly corrupt yeah, and terrible, yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, but he doesn't really advance the country. Yeah. Just much. briefly mentioned the original flag of the of the independent Gambia was rubbish. Oh, it's terrible. What is it? It's you know the the the, the blue ensign, it's, British ensign, like like in the Australian and New Zealand flags. It's it's the Union Jack in a corner and then a blue. Oh, okay, yeah. But instead of stars or whatever, like in Australia, New Zealand, it's got this little picture of it, it's it's a circle, and inside it looks like a sticker, yeah, with an elephant standing on a desert with a palm tree. Oh, I see, and like it. a sunset behind him, oh, and just the letter G written on it <laughs> with a full with stop. A full stop. G full so stop, like, and a smiling. How elephant. do we represent the Gambia? Uh, and I think at this point oh. elephants were extinct in the Gambia too. Yeah, they would have been extinct. I think 1900 so or thereabouts was the last it's elephant. Like, uh, it's Africa. We'll just put some African stuff on it. You couldn't <laughs> ask for anything that clashes more more badly with the, the oh Union Jack and the Blue Field. It just yeah. it looks so out of place. We'll we'll put a link to this um, or even embed it in the show notes so you can take a look for yourselves. But it's it's. I mean- it's a pleasant enough drawing in its own right, but it's not really flag material. It's not a flag. It? It's just there's, that's not what flags are for. Flags aren't for pictures. They're for. As a side note, there's a very interesting talk by um, Roman Mars, the guy who does Ninety Nine Percent Invisible podcast, which is excellent about flags. Uh, I think it's a TED Talk, mm, the TED mm. Talk that he did, and he specifically calls out yeah, this kind of yeah. thing. He had this obsession like with flags for a while. Realistic pictures on flags is just a terrible, terrible thing that people have tried to do and continually failed. So so they quickly replaced it with with a flag that isn't terrible, which is a it's kind of a, a horizontal tricolor, red, blue and green, but with white kind of borders between each color. It, it's fair enough. It's, you know, standard flag material. Mm. It, it, it's fine. And doesn't represent the political colors of any of the parties, which is unusual in post-colonial countries. Welcome, welcome. Adiza Jason today. We are, we are so many happy. Saint Peter is happy. Then everybody is happy. We say come to us, our glad one. We say come to us, our glad two. We say come to us, So. Jawara's doing okay. The economy's sort of ticking up a little bit. Peanuts are on the up. Nothing's hotter than peanuts. Yeah, it's all about the peanuts. Independence doesn't solve all their problems, shockingly. 
and it doesn't fulfill all the promises that the PPP and others made. So you do get some uh, dissatisfaction. In 1981, while Dauda Jawara is at the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana in uh, London, there is a coup attempt led by an ex-politician turned Marxist, Kukoi Sambasanyang. Good name. Uh, he's got this revolutionary party and also sections of the field force, which is the, the country's armed paramilitary. They're not really a, an army, but they're sort of a armed police maybe might be a closer. So some of them join up with this Marxist uh, revolutionary council and try to have a coup. It only lasts a couple of days. V- very rapidly, Jawara flew to Senegal and met with President Diouf, and they agreed to deploy 400 troops within the next two days. Eventually, 2,700 troops were deployed and completely put down this coup. There were about five or six, maybe 700 casualties um, during the violence. That's a lot. Wow. It is. That's, and that's way more than expected. Yeah, it is a lot more than you'd expect. But Jawara, this is again why I kind of praise him and to some extent... He wasn't authoritarian about it. Standard response for coup is to take everyone, line them up against the wall and shoot them. Yeah. He instead had, there were 800 speedy and judicious judicious trials and the majority of people involved in the coup were released. Wow. Soon after uh, they they were charged. The most serious offenders were tried by an impartial panel of judges from across the English speaking Commonwealth. So he took kind of doing things right seriously. Fair fair play to him and all that stuff. Some people did obviously go to prison for longer periods because uh, they did bad things. But I think San Yang himself fled to, the, fled to Libya where Muammar Gaddafi put him up because he'd been encouraged by Gaddafi. Gaddafi was doing a lot of that he stuff, was. if you recall. He was also training uh, Charles Taylor for... Uh, yeah, and I think in, uh, San Yang and Taylor had met each other in Libya. Bonkers. Uh, I was I was going to ask, yeah. but yeah. Charles Taylor of so Liberia. That's a, a rather dark connection between two episodes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I found this little account just from uh, from this 1981 coup attempt that there, there was a handful, I think only two SAS um, operatives that were in uh, Gambia around this time. When, when the coup started and, and the president was away, they were dressed in civilian clothes. They were armed with um, uh, weapons that were brought in in diplomatic cases, apparently. Mm. They were flown covertly into Senegal. So I guess the cooperation with Senegal facilitated them being entered into the country. Within short order, small groups of rebels were being captured and handed over to the Senegalese troops who seemed mystified as to who was doing it. They also, one of their big uh, priorities was uh, the safety of Lady Jawara. She was still in the country at the time. Oh, because of course, uh, Dauda Jawara is a knight now. He's Sir Dauda Jawara. Um, Ah, yes, yes. That's why she's Lady Jawara. She was in a hospital at the time with her five children and the uh, SAS men, I think even disguised themselves and were able to get close enough to her and use the hospital staff to claim that the the, the paramilitary, the rebel guns were scaring the other uh, patients and use that excuse to kind of like, maybe you just leave your guns outside. And then these two SAS guys turn up in white gowns and spirit her away. Uh, so they, there was a little bit of, you know, British colonial yeah. clandestine military help going on and, in the background. And so well. this, this whole incident did... Qu- Raised questions about the sovereignty of the Gambia, which which Jawara had been really emphasising as important. But as soon as there was trouble, he went straight to Senegal and uh, had them mm. 
fix, save his regime, essentially. Fix it, please. And one of the immediate consequences was the formation of the Confederation of Senegambia. So this, this word, Senegambia, comes back. And basically, Senegal and Gambia formed a political economic union. Uh, not, not a single country, but a, a confederation. And their goals were to integrate the armed and security forces of both nations, to develop an economic and monetary union, and to create joint institutions. So kind of to move towards a regional, um, almost like a European Union or, or, or a, uh, ASEAN or, or some, some kind of arrangement like that. Yeah, as was the style at the time. There were doubts about Gambia's economic viability and stability, and poorly regulated borders contributed to the, the drive to kind of make this confederation so it kind of wouldn't matter that the border was a bit fluid um, and Joara was was the vice president of this confederation which Abdou Diouf of Senegal as president there was a twice yearly meeting of a, par- a confederal parliament with delegates from each of Senegal and Gambia's parliaments and it, it kind of worked for a while but there was resistance to it as well so some saw the whole confederation as a pretext for Wolof supremacy Mm. as uh, they were one of the major ethnic groups on both sides of the border. So Mandinkas weren't necessarily so impressed. And a customs union would have really hurt the Gambia's tax intake, so there was resistance to that too. In '89, President Diouf uh, dissolved the union, gave up on the project, and favoured what was called a privileged relationship as, as well instead. So they're still friends, but... Uh, Just be buds. Yeah, not living in the same house. And one big mistake made was that the Confederation led to the f- formation of an army, a Gambian army, Uh-oh. and that plants Uh-oh. the seeds of um, oh, no. the next major uh, disrupt in, in, in Gambian political life. In the 80s, there was some good work done in reforming the economy with help from Harvard and the IMF, but in the long term, the price of ground nuts dropped and everything went to hell. Uh <laughs> Uh, to, to a hell It was hole. a very vulnerable economy. And infant mortality was high. Oh, literacy God. was low. Malaria is high. And we start seeing evidence of corruption within the PPP that have been in power for so long. It doesn't seem like Jawara himself was corrupt. And he did put limits on how corrupt he'd let people be without, without right. stepping in. But this idea of the Banjul Mafia of sort of businessmen and uh, landowners associated yeah. with the PPP really undermined the credibility of this um, regime. Even though when he tried to retire in 1992, public demand had him run again and win right. another election, the scene was set for a change. A change is going to come. So we've had Jawara for bonkers number of years. There is really... In, in the future history of the Gambia, there's only two other presidents, and one of them just got deposited in, in 2017. So we're, we're, we're due for a big character to, to present his credentials. Uh, Joe, you mentioned that the, the Gambian army had been formed. This was, this was as you say, going to lead to some trouble. There had been, uh, I think, two different army mutinies just before 1994. And as a result, the Nigerian army had actually been brought into the Gambia basically to kind of police the Gambian army. Oh, that's um, good. They, uh, they were not really trusted. They were disarming them. Uh, and it was increasing resentment within the Gambian army. It seems to have happened really, really rapidly. I'll, I'll basically just give you an account of, of what the view was from Jawara. He had been out of the country for a month and he was arriving back in at night into, into Banjul Airport. 
so he kind of noticed something was up because the vice president, whose name was uh, Saiho Sabali, he normally would be expected to greet the, the president on his return. He wasn't there. Uh-oh. The justice minister was uh, Justice uh, Hassan Jallo. But as soon as the, the greeting was finished, he scarpered quick smart. And also the soldiers who were there were behaving oddly, apparently. And this was in part because the Nigerian army had just disarmed them because they didn't trust them with guns around the president. Hmm. So everything was really a bit odd. The next morning, he, he had a briefing from his intelligence chief. And the intelligence chief was saying, you know, there was some rumor yesterday of, uh, of a coup being planned. It's, uh, you know, it, just in case you hear it, don't worry about it. It was just a rumor. It was totally false. And then somebody comes to the door saying, let's get out of here. There is a coup. So basically, uh, Jawara has to scarper real fast. I think pretty much that day he, he gets out of the country. The, the person who comes in to replace him is Jame. Yaya Jame is going to be, is going to be the next president. But that's not totally obvious from the start. The vice president that was uh, suspiciously missing from the, the greeting party for, for uh, Jawara. Oh, he thought he was going to be president. Saiho Sabali, yes. Ah, uh, two guys, Edward Singate and Sana Sabali, they, they were originally, I think, uh, they were soldiers. And then there was a, a group of, I guess, kind of uh, sub-conspirators, including uh, Alpha Kinte, uh, Alhagi Kante and Basura Baro. And originally, these five guys were planning the coup together. The planning took place in the jungles uh, in Kudang, apparently during a military exercise organized by the Nigerian uh, <laughs> Nigerian commanders. That worked. But the the three the three guys the the sub conspirators got cold feet. But Sabali and Singate were kind of cast out the net a little bit and found uh, a guy by the name of Haidara. And Yaya Jame. The article I was reading this from was you know, pretty condemning of Jame. So it, it had a lot of things like Yaya Jame, of course, will never turn down an opportunity to partner in a crime, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. Nice. So um, he was a little lieutenant in the army, right? Yeah, yeah. And he had, he had uh, gone to the US for training like as well. He was one of these... 25, uh, 26? Uh, when the coup happened, 29. 29. Uh, so he was he was president at 29. He he has you know, you'll see photos of him and YouTube videos of him. He has a weirdly, almost a menacing madness to his to how he holds himself. There's something very, I don't know, unsettling. Something quite threatening about the guy. Are you sure that isn't just that? There's photographs of him everywhere, like in every city, in every town. He's on a billboard waving at you. Well, he always looks very cheery, and that's the unsettling <laughs> thing. There's something quite like, oh no, his eyes aren't smiling. It's a mad kind of happiness. It's like, oh, that's something, something off about you, buddy. So going forward a little bit, uh, he he took down each of his co-conspirators. I saw an account that uh, Lieutenant Barrow, who was one of the the guys who was meant to be a part of the conspiracy, but fell out. He uh, was summarily executed only a few months later. Um, Sana Sabali, the the vice president and Saidubu Haidara, they were bundled up and thrown in jail after about six months. Haidara would uh, perish due to high blood pressure issues, apparently. Uh, Sabali served in prison for nine years uh, and then went into exile. Uh, so kind of one by one, he was just ticking the names so off his list. all of the things that, that Jawara didn't do that were, go- that were good things yeah. not to do, Jama's making Jame, up for... Jama knew, knew what he was doing, making, yeah. Making up for a waste of time. So moving on, 
Uh, Yaya Jame, himself born in 1965 in Kanilai village, Gambia, joined the army in 1984 when he was only 19, um, promoted to lieutenant in 89, and then became commander of the Gambian military police. So he was already kind of a high-profile guy at the point that he was pulled into the, the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. From the start... Lieutenant Jame, straight out of the, the military police training course in the United States and promised that his would be a coup with a difference. Uh, he vowed that him and his fellow soldiers are not here to perpetuate ourselves. Uh, bear in mind, I referred to earlier to the fact that he's just left in 2017. So it's not, it didn't really pan out. Um, and that they, the military would hand back over control to the civilian government as soon as the, you know, yeah. the country yeah. was set back right in the righteous path. That always happens. Yeah. One of the photographs Niall sent us from his trip to the Gambia, and he was actually there during the recent presidential kerfuffle, wasn't he? He was indeed. I was actually a bit concerned about it, uh, uh, but uh, he managed well, to get uh, out on yeah. his totally scheduled flight so he wasn't part um, of the exodus of foreigners that was organized by the but the, 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 the front page of the daily observer from the 25th of july 1994 yeah was in is in one of the museums he visited and the headline is we will never introduce dictatorship in this country with a picture mm-hmm. of Lit- lieutenant jame <laughs> and then in the bottom left hand corner senegal grants sir dauda jawara political asylum Yep, so that's where he went. And then on the other side, there, there was like an ad for cement or something. Like, everything else but from like really normal. Yeah. There was like a, on this day, um, births and deaths anniversaries of like English poet such and such was born. Got the, like, you've just had a coup. Surely that should be the whole front page. So moving on, um, Dauda had been, and I kind of uh, alluded to this earlier on, he was criticized particularly by Jame by the fact that the in 30 years he hadn't built a hospital uh, and that in 30 that's years fair. he hadn't built a university. Uh, and that also, that's, you know, it's a fair point fair. that they, there was n- not enough capacity building within the Gambia that, you know, it, it didn't take much for this guy to take over. He basically mm-hmm. you know, did it in, in a day uh, and without an, an enormous amount of help. And the coup was, you know, basically a, a, a bloodless coup. So it was... Uh, what wasn't a massive um, a catastrophe for the Gambia, say. So Jame, moving on, he was the chairman uh, of a, a group. He kind of formed a political structure around him once he had offed one by one the, the, the people who had been co-conspirators. He was elected president then in 1996. So now he has kind of democratic uh, thumbs up. Uh, you know, there's a lot of accounts of intimidation and so on uh, around the elections. And they, they, they no longer are the... Um, the, the, the watchword for uh, African, you know, good examples of democracy. Re-elected in 2001, 2006, 2011, uh, all the elections were heavily criticized for their impartiality. He was a friend of Hugo Chavez and Colonel Gaddafi. In, in, the, in that kind of mold, he was railing against the evils of colonialism. Mm. You know, fair enough, but that's really kind of just blaming uh, people who don't really have the keys to the country anymore for all the things that are happening that he himself is actually doing and allowing to happen. Yeah. The British, he says, did nothing for Gambia during colonial times except, and I quote, to tell us how to sing Baba Black Sheep and God Save the Queen. Oh, God. It's fair. Jame, he withdrew Gambia from the Commonwealth of Nations. He declared the country an Islamic Republic. According to him, such a proclamation is in line with Gambia's religious identity and values. And was still endorsing religious freedom, but, you know, still making a state religion. Yeah, so. but to be fair, religious freedom is, is good in the Gambia, even during this period. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's relatively, um, and, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Jame always gave a Christmas address, for instance, on TV. 
mm-hmm. with no problem. You know, and government business would often have prayers from Christians and Muslims. So, you know, it's it's not a, by any means, a, that's yeah. not a, a, a that's massive not problem. That's not the issue. Yeah. Let's get to the issues. Uh, I... In my notes, I have in a bold 20 point uh, each of these headings, and it's it's quite the list. Starting, anti-homosexuality. Uh, he's very, very anti-homosexual, or he was very anti-homosexual. I'm sure he still is. He just doesn't uh, yeah, live there anymore. Wherever he yeah. is. I think he's in, is he in Guinea or now? Or? Anyway, we'll get to it later. Um, he called homosexuals evil and vermins, anti-God and anti-human. He also passed laws against them, threatened to cut off their heads, telling a crowd during an agricultural tour, if you do it in the Gambia, I will slit your throat. If you are a man and want to marry another man in this country and we catch you, no one will ever set eyes on you again. And no white person can do anything about it. Okay, so this isn't kind of casual homophobic comments. It's sort of no, a very real. It's a, a dense vein of homophobia right there. Maybe we can go on to the next point being his home village. I, I found this today and it's uh, I enjoy I enjoy reading this a lot. So we mentioned he was born in the village of Kanilai uh, and he basically pumped a bunch of money into it for no damn reason. Uh, just just as an ego ego boost. Kanilai is a village in southern Gambia. This is uh, my, my, my Wikipedia voice near the border with Senegal. Ooh, interesting fact. Hmm. Uh, President of Gambia, Yaya Jame, was born in this village. And uh, coincidentally, it is now home to the Presidential Palace, a wrestling arena, a luxury <laughs> hotel, a game park, and a zoo. The zoo, which Chami said would allow Gambians to experience African wildlife, was unsuccessful at first, with animals dying due to hunting, predation, oh. and insufficient food. And who's so... hunting in a zoo? <sighs> that's <laughs> not that's not how you use a zoo. Uh... That's not how that's you not zoo. A zoo. <laughs> it's uh, bad zooing yeah. and is this is a big town it's a village in southern gambia joe okay. it's it's a village it takes a village to make a jamie that's what i've always yeah. said anyway <laughs> just this morning i found this article and i like okay i will preface preface it by saying heavily partisan i grant it and they're obviously not fans of jamie but I'm just going to read this this out. This is from, uh, as I say, freedomradiogambia.com from 2016. Doesn't sound like the name you have when you're in favour of the Democrat, of the uh, military dictator. Okay, so this is a, again about the the home village, can he lie? He is on his so-called vacation again. Sin City, Canali is the place for fornication and adultery. Jame's protocol girls have started booking appointments for him for the women he should sleep with. First Lady Zina Jame should reactivate her contacts in Kanilai. Jame is cheating on you. Jame knows for a fact that you do not live in Kanilai, and as such, he is capitalizing on your absence to fool around. Jame should bring his ass back to State House in Banjul and spare the prostitutes. His <laughs> infidelity is becoming out of hand. <laughs> Sorry, bear with me. Women from Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, and locally in the Gambia have started thronging to Kanilai to meet Jame for sex. Jame is a whore. He doesn't care about the plight of suffering Gambians. He is only preoccupied to sleep around at the detriment of poverty-stricken Gambians. Pimp, Jimbe Jame, Awe Jame, and Co., should know that there are people in Kanilai watching your activities. You are in the business of hooking up Jame with Gambian girls for sex. 
the dictator has overnight become a sex maniac. So that might be propaganda, Mark. Uh, <laughs> it might, it might it be. Is fair and balanced, guys. Fair um, and balanced. Um, okay, moving on. He, That's he how you do journalism. Always dresses in white robes and a fez. Yes. Rather than um, more traditional, either military yeah. outfit or, or a, a business suit. He's gone for a really striking, very African look. If, if you see him, um, like, when he's doing campaigning or anything like that, he is super noticeable. Not just because he's, like, a big, burly, smiling guy, but he's got his, uh, usually has a, a stick he walks with. And, and yeah, he, he's, he's, he's the guy who's dressed in immaculate white robes. It's good branding. He stands out really, really well. And his picture is everywhere. In a country with a large level of illiteracy, Yeah, it's important that you have photographs it's- of yourself on every billboard. And, like, you enter a town and it's like... A picture of him waving at you saying welcome to Banjul. Like it's it's pretty bizarre. It's kinda of like um North Korean Kim Jong il or something. Like as you said, Joe, he's 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 kind of very much a figurehead like yeah. that's displayed everywhere. Uh just to mention, he commemorates the coup not when he was elected president. That's mm. something or he he yeah, he commemorated the coup. It was the nineteen ninety four coup that he commemorated always in in lots of different ways but it was all that was always that being the date and that yeah. made a lot of people quite uncomfortable because he really like he was also elected maybe <laughs> big big that up a bit big man moving on to his his very unfortunate views on aids so it seemed to be a, the the thing that he was known for for a lot of the 2000s as the african president claiming he had a cure for aids his cure was and i take this from a from a youtube video i looked through Ninety percent Allah, ten percent herbs. Uh, there's an Al Jazeera docu- documentary on this from 2007. Uh, some of the choice quotes from the you know the, the interviewer is barely containing his incredulity and you know fear in the face of this this sex maniac. What role does the banana and peanuts have in the treatment? Uh, what? Uh, it's not just a, no. It's what role does the banana and the peanuts have in the treatment? It's not just any banana. You have to prey on it. Uh, was the response so yeah so this was a big thing he uh, he was um, uh, having clinics and treatment for everybody yeah, I think it, it falls in with the the tradition of you know uh, spiritual healers and, mm-hmm. and this kind of thing which is very common and he kind of used that idea to to, to put that on himself as well it's a little bit you know the kind of uh, uh, medium well yeah but it's also like the cult of personality kind yeah. of thing there was other kind of culty little aspects he, and he, he made also, sure to like dump them on himself as he well. He also claims he can he can cure hypertension and infertility. Uh, asthma was also mentioned. Yeah. You know, pretty much anything. Uh, asthma and epilepsy. Uh, he has an extensive knowledge in traditional herbal therapy and succeeding yeah. where modern medical science has failed, according to him. But uh, yeah, but not according obviously, to like mortality a- anybody, figures. Yeah, yeah. No, didn't. Although I would say that uh, for the region. Um, AIDS is actually relatively low in Gambia. It's about 1.5 to 2.5%, uh, relatively low. Hmm. Um, so uh, Jame is hard on AIDS, hard on witches. 2009, uh, hmm. he had an anti, anti-witch really? uh, campaign. Yeah, so... Are they a big problem? Eh, according, according to him, and less so now that he has intervened. So they would round up people and, f- by all accounts, just feed them mad drugs. 
Uh, mm. The Roundups were guided by the president's Green Boys, villagers say. They're his most militant supporters. They're vigilante diehards. They would uh, uh, paint their faces green. The, the, the accusation of witchcraft is super pervasive and uh, it was claimed the stigma will follow the, the people to their graves. Yeah, basically they just said there's witches everywhere. They're the problems with everything. So they kind of ghosted them from the streets and fed them a bunch of mad drugs that caused them real discomfort in prisons. One quote from a, a fellow called Yaya Gassam, human rights is not here right now. Human rights is pop. Uh, that was his account of what was happening at the time. Now, so obviously not perfect, uh, not great stuff. Uh, a coup attempt in, in 2014 occurred, uh, which was kind of almost covered up yeah um, i kind of i read about the uncertainty about whether that happened or not yeah i think there was a push or certainly there was a fear of a push mm. and you know they they closed the borders and the communications went down and stuff like that a, a, a lot of their reactions suggested that they genuinely believed there was a possibility of a yeah. coup happening but uh, uh mr jami told the bbc he would rule Ga- the gambia for a, br- a billion years so uh, that was 2011 so support of realistic goals still still pretty confident i guess yeah he was off think, by 900 million or so <laughs> uh, and jami uh at the time it's thought he was either in france or dubai but mm. he was out of town basically so in the same way of what happened to jawara they tried to do the same to him now in 2016 there was the election uh, the most recent election, and he actually campaigned quite hard because uh, there had been this coup quite recently. So he realized that he was up against it a little bit. So he he really campaigned hard. He was running all over the country, uh, meeting people. Against him, there was a, a an ally group of, I think, seven different opposition parties. A coalition of everyone, yeah. Yeah, inc- everybody Including the them. remnants of the PPP. So I, I'm just going to quickly read them out and it'll give you an idea of what we're dealing with. There was the uh, People's Democratic Organization for Independence and Socialism, uh, National Reconciliation Party, the Gambia Moral Congress, the National Convention Party, the People's Progressive Party, the PPP, uh, the Gambia Party for Democracy and Progress, and uh, as well as some prominent uh, anti-female genital mutilation campaigners. So Hmm. the election, we haven't mentioned this actually, but elections in Gambia are a little different. They're undertaken with marbles. Yeah. There's a, there's a wonderful BBC clip explaining mm. this, which I th- we'll put a link in the show notes, because see, you really have to see it. But the, basically, literacy is low. Yeah. So a ballot paper is useless. It requires education to vote. They don't want that. They want everyone to vote. And I don't know if it's been this way all through Jama's career, but definitely this last election was very free and transparent and open. Yeah, this one was. And yeah. basically, you have three barrels with each of the candidates' party colours. Yep. Their photograph is on the barrel. Mm-hmm. And the independent uh, electoral commission agent gives you a marble if you're eligible yep. to vote. And you then pop it into one of the barrels. And each barrel makes a different noise, from what I can see. Oh, yep. One will wow. have a bicycle bell, and one will have a, a, a whistle. And so you can hear if something untoward's happening. Yeah. And um, then the barrels are, are sealed up and brought off to count centres and they're just rolled out into. Uh, doesn't that kind of it's not, ruin yeah, the anonymity it kind of, of your vote? points out who you're voting for. Yeah. I was thinking that, all right. Yeah, it, but the to be fair, it sounds like the electoral agents who work in polling stations are yeah. reasonably It impartial. seems to work. There doesn't seem to be intimidation yeah. at that point. It's, it's not ideal, yeah. but it does seem to work somehow. I also just to point out that the fact that the, the, their pictures are on the hands 
that should underline the importance of Jame putting his face on everything in the mm-hmm. country. Yeah. That if you only recognize one of the three, it'll be Jame for sure. But that didn't help him last time, right? That didn't help him. He lost the election of 36.7% is what Jame got. And his head opponent, Barrow, got 45.5%. Barrow, just for a little bit of background, used to work as a security guard in an Argos in London. Of course. Uh, <laughs> and on, on Holloway Road uh, in the 2000s. Uh, I think he moved there for, for education. He paid his way through uh, working at Argos as a security guard. So then we had the, the most recent issue with Gambia. Uh, Jame basically rejected the defeat. So this is what, January, February 2017, this was happening? Yeah, he called for a fresh vote. Uh, not many people really agreed with him. Then Jame said he changed his mind and wanted fresh and transparent elections, which will be officiated by a God-fearing and independent electoral commission. Mm. So in the meantime, he was basically stalling for time while he stole millions of dollars, approximately about ten and a half, eleven million dollars and started shipping out luxury vehicles by cargo plane. Yeah, and the luxury vehicles were, when he eventually agrees to go, they were part of the deal of peaceful leaving, was that he got to yeah. keep all of his... Ill-gotten gains. But, but specifically the luxury vehicles were top of his list. So th- this seems to be a real status symbol for him. I think I think maybe the money was already out, and this was the mm, last maybe. thing. So And people didn't know about the money until afterwards, as but, far as but, I know. But similarly, Barrow was, is in Senegal just across the border waiting yeah 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 for sure come and, and take power uh the senegalese army are essentially saying if you don't leave you know we recognize the outcome of this election we're willing to enforce it and that was yeah. kind of the final straw i think the the gambian army wasn't willing to defend the, the gambian army is only two thousand five hundred people yeah. but they also they weren't willing to defend jammy at this point Ba- basically no uh, the, the the army had kind of come out and said we're going to respect the result of the election yeah. um, and uh, to be fair it wasn't just Senegal other other regional powers I think uh, also Nigeria right. uh, a few other countries what is it is it ECOWAS ECOWAS uh, exactly yeah West African super team we've encountered them before haven't we yep there there were some clashes it seems mainly around the village of Kanilai which yeah. is uh, his his birthplace there was a lot of displacement of people, though. That's the really, uh, the really negative impact here. Uh, Forty-five thousand people were displaced. Oh wow! Uh, many into Senegal. Yeah, it's it's actually huge. And then another eight hundred people uh, had to flee into Guinea-Bissau. Seventy-five percent of the displaced people arriving in Senegal were children, with the remainder being mostly women. And why why were they being displaced? Uh, I think because just the the traffic of troops and just fear. Fear okay. of you know uh, um, uh, of a war. Yeah. Jame's his paramilitaries and his his guys. Uh, and Jame also accused of all the standard stuff you might expect, like uh, detention, torture, mm-hmm. murdering of hundreds of opponents. Uh, and he is now in Equatorial Guinea, which is uh, crucially not signed up to the International Criminal Court. Uh, ah, so he is, um, yeah. So he's basically there. Yeah, I read a little bit about Equatorial Guinea. Not a very nice spot. Uh, Teodoro Obiang. Nogemo Mambasogo is Africa's longest serving ruler, detention of more than 90 opposition activists, including just, you know, beating people to death. So it, it, he's, he's, he's going like for like here. He's going okay. to uh, a, a dictator but on the now, of the international community. Now the Gambia has a new president. There's quite a bit of hope about him. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it seems What's to be... What's his first name again? Uh, Adama. Adama Barrow. Adama Barrow, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. Uh, and so the, there is a potentially a bright and democratic future, but we'll have to see. Um, there's the tourism, which is mm. which is still there. There's a lot of uh, air links to not just the UK, but also uh, Scandinavia, think, uh, apparently. Scandinavia, uh, uh, I, read, Holland, I read one story where places. a Scandinavian liner bound for Senegal landed there by mistake and everyone loved it. So they made it yes. their new uh, 
their new business model was to fly to the Gambia and it became very popular for the 70s and 80s. Just some 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 good things to say. Uh, the European Union confirmed uh, that they're going to release 33 million euro in aid. They froze underneath the Jame administration. Okay. They just weren't going to give it to him because they knew he was going to steal it. Yeah, uh, also, the, se- the health system potentially is positioned for rapid improvement. Um, a shout out to Colin Lyons who put me onto this article. Uh, the the Gambian diaspora, uh, if any of them are incentivized to come home, on average they're better educated than the, than those Gambians who never left. Yep. So the Gambian health service could really uh, could really do with that uh, intellectual capital coming back home. One downside to mention is that in in the current situation with so many displaced people, there is not a lot of aid getting to where it needs to get mm-hmm. to so that's a continuing problem of uh, food security but that is that is an ongoing situation it's not necessarily you know going to turn out badly but it, it is it's a concern for sure right now we should probably say in terms of industry um 70 of the population work in agriculture mm-hmm. to some extent so those peanuts often as a subsistence farming um so mm-hmm. generally the women will plant rice uh, along the river where mangrove swamps have been cleared they'll plant rice in, in sort of makeshift paddies and men will farm the peanuts for selling and that between those who have food and some money uh, millet and potatoes are also common and a lot of interestingly a lot of um, harvesting work is done by migrant labourers from Guinea and Senegal hmm. oh. in the rainy season so that that's a surprise to me but then the population is quite small also, you get a lot of fish uh, in the diet as well, obviously, because of the, yep. the river is like so, mm, so yeah, central to the society, particularly oysters, I think. And they have a coastline as yeah, well. Oysters, yeah, oyster stew is a, is a very traditional Gambian dish, I believe. Nice. Yeah, and there's there's a place called Oyster Creek up, in, up near oh, the, yeah. the mouth of the river, which was a, a place that the British took at some point. In terms of the wildlife, they have a hugely diverse mm. wildlife population, I guess. They have up to 40 different species of bats. They have like a bunch of different antelopes, uh, mm. aardvarks, hyenas, Nile crocodiles, uh, hippopotamuses, sun squirrels, warthogs, bush pigs, chameleons, cobras, mambas, dolphins, manatees, and a bird called a goliath heron, which sounds pretty cool. Great name. And we, we sh- probably didn't mention this yet, but the river is so big that I don't think there's any bridges within the country or perhaps one really, ah. really, really, really far up river. So a huge industry is um, transporting ferries. people across yeah, ferries yeah. and so on. And there's resistance to building bridges because it would actually put a lot of people out of work. So lots of small uh, private ferries run constantly across the river back and right. forth and cruise ships run up and down with tourists on them. All of these islands like James Island and uh, McCarthy Island are popular tourist locations for people staying at the beaches down on the Atlantic coast. They'll go up river on, on day trips. And this is an important con- contributor to the economy. Some stats I read, uh, 156,000 visitors in 2014 with a high percentage of returning visitors. So ah. people will go and they, they go back. It does look beautiful. Like uh, I can, oh, no, I can see the appeal. Mm. In fact, my, my friend Niall, after he came back, uh, my, my other friend Colin, I just give a shout out to, his dad just went as well. I mean, mm. it's, it's they're both working with the, uh, NGOs as far as I know, but at the same time, they're quite keen to go. It's a very beautiful place. But um, I just wanted to mention this thing I, I read about. So something, uh, I don't know how controversial it is to, to say this, but in the tourism industry in Gambia, that is uh, increasingly common is uh, gigolos. 
young Gambian wow. men uh, having relationships with uh, older female tourists. So, yeah, there's a tourist trip. Romances between local men of the 20s and British women in their 50s or 60s is a common sight. Diplomats even report seeing gigolos promenading with elderly women on mobility scooters. Hmm. Wow. One other thing, and this actually came up in uh, when we did our East, Easter Island podcast, that the Easter Island airport was potentially going to be used by NASA as an emergency landing site for hmm. the shuttle. So was Banjul. Banjul was actually also on that list because it's so close to the equator. Yeah, same kind of latitude. Sports, real quick. I mean, it does seem to be just football. I can't really see anything else. They have never got into a World Cup. They are 178th in the world, just below Bhutan, another uh, another 80 mm. days destination. But I just wanted to, to, to go down through the list of the African Cup of Nations and what happened with each one. 57 to 74 did not enter. 76 did not qualify. 78 did not enter. 80 to 88 did not qualify. 1990 withdrew. 1992 did not qualify. 94 did not enter. 96 withdrew during qualifying. 98 mm. banned for withdrawing the previous time in 96. <laughs> 2000 withdrew. 20, 2002 to 2013 did not qualify. 2015 banned. And then 2017 did not qualify. So they've never they've never done the African Cup of Nations, but they seem to have had a different reason for that each, each time. and every time. All right. All right. So. Uh, I think that's it for today. If you want uh, any more any more information on the Gambia, uh, if you if this, you're a like, fool, there is no more. That's every single not enough unit for you. of information. Uh, you can check out our show notes with links to the music that we've used in this episode and also that flag. We want to thank Niall O'Leary for providing the clips directly from the Gambia. Uh, thanks very much, Niall. Mm. Thank you, Niall. And it's good to chat with him as well about, about 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 that. We want to thank two of our recent Kickstarter backers, John Keating and Lorraine Mounsey. Uh, thank you guys very much for your recent donations. We appreciate it very much. Cheers. Thank and you. also want to say, reiterate again, our sponsors for the season, Harry Baby. Uh, you can get 10% off of their merchandise uh, with the coupon code 80 days at eight. That's eight zero days at harrybaby.com Mark where can people find more about you on the internet you can grab me on twitter uh, at markboyle86 uh, you, you'll often find me live tweeting uh, university challenge that's, Very nice. that's my current my current <laughs> big thing and Joe an important uh, contribution to the world you can find stuff about me on timetoburn.com where burn is B-Y-R-N-E and you find links to other stuff there uh, you can find me on LukeJKelly.com or on Twitter at the TheLukeJKelly. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Uh, that always helps the visibility of the show. Please, you can please. also contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Just search 80 Days Podcast. Or you can contact us on 80DaysPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you guys next time. 